millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Paul from Belfast, and you're listening to Dane Baptiste Questions Everything. My question is, if you could have the power of any of the Greek gods, which would it be? Okay, here comes the show, and remember, question everything. Hello everybody and welcome to Dane Baptiste Question Everything. It's a podcast where myself, comedian, writer and occasional actor Dane Baptiste, my producer friend Howard Cohen, aka The Hizzer. Hello! And a mix of very special guests pose the questions that need to be asked. And we are talking everything from... We are talking everything from Paul from Belfast's question. If you could have the power of any Greek gods, which one would it be? Dane, I think you've probably thought about this before in your life, haven't you? I have a bit, but then I gave it a lot more thought. Um, so I'd say I'm going to go for the very simple and boring answer of Zeus. Because I thought Hercules before, but then Zeus is Hercules' dad, so I assume he has a lot more strength. And, I mean, Zeus is really only known for, like, lightning bolts and several, several extramarital affairs uh, behind Hera's back. Um, but I feel like the fact that he has been able to do that without any kind of punitive measures being taken by his wife is his greatest superpower. That's a good... That's a very good answer. Go with Zeus. Uh, I'm going to go. I'm going to go probably with Apollo, um, who I when I did my research, he turns out he was god of a lot of things: music, poetry, art, truth, archery, healing, sun. That all sounds pretty nice, doesn't it? An interesting mix of things. So um, all sound like things that wouldn't do much against a lightning bolt, Howard. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> I'm not trying to fight you, Dane. I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna be. Well, I'm Zeus, and I like a fight, Howard. <laughs> okay, that's fine. So, uh, suffice to say, on this podcast, we ask and answer all the questions, don't we, Dave? Absolutely, no question is too big, small, stupid, smart, highbrow, lowbrow, or intrusive, hopefully. And if you do like this show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify, and you'll never miss an episode. Or subscribe to us on ACAST, the world's largest podcast network, where you can see all of our special guests unskinned and answering all the important questions. With that being said, on today's show, our guest is a British journalist and libertarian communist political activist. She is senior editor at Navarra Media and teaches at the Sandberg Institute in Amsterdam. She's also a contributor to The Guardian and The Independent. It's Ash Saka. Hello. Hey. Welcome. Hey. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I was just um, really worried to hear that Dane wants to be Zeus, whose <laughs> main way of getting people pregnant wasn't just as himself. It was turning into different animals in order to knock up different unsuspecting women in Greece. So it wasn't just he was coming down with his like big beard and his thunderbolts. He was like, I'm going to disguise myself as a swan. Yeah, One time as a swan, another time as a bull. I'm saying, mm. am I the problem as the god of the Olympians or <laughs> these women with clear bestial fetishes? Are they the problem, Ash? That's what you need to ask yourself. It's a theme that comes up again and again in Greek myth. There's also Pacifiae who uh, sees a sacred bull. I think maybe it was either one of Poseidon's bulls sent to tempt her or was one of Apollo's sacred cows. I couldn't remember. And she gets um, Daedalus, the inventor, to build a fake cow for her to like get close enough to admire the bull. And then she's like, well, one thing led to another. I banged the bull. And then she gives birth <laughs> to the Minotaur. And there you go. And wow. I feel like, Ash, that in itself has been overlooked by Greek mythology. I feel like at the point in which a woman was like, mm, I could try some bull penis, someone should have been like, hey, hey. <laughs> hey, hey. You have all gone too far. Have you considered an Abrahamic religion? Or yeah, something? exactly. Just a little less. I mean, it's, don't get me wrong. It's still, it's still patriarchally oppressive to an extent, but there is less interspecies mm. sex. Hmm. Yeah, good, good. As far as I know, I didn't get all the way through all the holy texts. So the end chapters, who knows what's in there? That's true. There is a mark of a beast there as well. And there are some bullheaded people involved as well. So, you know, Baphomet, he's got a goat's head and a goat's body. So that's one guy. I think he's based on like a satyr though. Yeah. <laughs> I think you're wondering though, you got to, you got to, you got to say about the, uh, 
all those Greek gods and stuff is that the um, the films they used to make about them in the, in like the fifties and sixties and so if you ever watch those old films, they are still quite an entertaining watch. I'm talking like Jason and the Argonauts, Ten Commandments. Like, it's all kind of Golden quite- Fleece. Yeah, it's all pretty good. Like the CGI, obviously, it's claymation. A lot of it. I, I prefer it to CGI. I, I prefer it to the remake. Very entertaining. Has she seen those films? Yeah, I have. And you know what? It is so much better than that George Lucas remake. go again CGI. Yeah, when for it did Star it, when it looked like fucking I mean? robots. Like, yeah, it was oh, <laughs> oh horrible. It's like I know what this classic movie needs. It's another stupid animal in the background. <laughs> but that, like, you know, the kind of claymation skeletons and Jason and the Argonauts just. Fantastic. Like, I could watch that film again and again. Absolutely. And, you know, they were made around the same time that they made, like, the Sinbad films, which also had the same kind of, like, stop-motion animation. You know, those are in the days when people were fine when seeing Muslims on screen and acting alongside them. And then <laughs> people were like, wait, Sinbad's a bad guy. Really? When? <laughs> wait a minute. He's he's an Iraqi with a sword? We don't feel so great about that. <laughs> right before. They were fine with it before. It's weird how that changed. Yeah, man. In a pre-war and terror context, everyone loved the Muslim with a sword. They oh, did. We were Remember, great. Yeah. Jewel of the Nile, people Rambo. loved that one. Rambo loved it. Rambo, people yeah. loved Rambo. That was great. Aladdin, I mean, it's a fictional quasi-Islamic state of Agrabah, but people were still fine with it. Aladdin was was as fine as a man could be without any visible nipples. I remember oh, seeing him. Ash, and I was like, you become my favourite guest of all time by bringing up the lack of nipples. In <laughs> the, I've always told one. Anytime anyone brings up Aladdin, I always want to bring up. You know, he's got no nipples. I mean, I would take a, a, a nipple deficiency over a surplus of nipples, as we saw in the Batman Forever and Batman and Robin film. <laughs> so you got you kind of got to pick like what you're going with. I'd, I'd rather go without nipple. And I think when we take into account like how much tireless work the animators do, if they leave out nipples here and there, just mm. give them some grace. Well, that was going to be my first question actually for you guys: was nipple or no nipple? And I've got to think of a whole new one. Yeah, I mean. It, it's come up before. So. <laughs> it, probably, it probably is time for a question, isn't it, Dane, as the format of this show dictates? Absolutely, especially as we know that Howard's nipples mm. are pierced, so there's no need to go over old ground. So, Good Lord. Nothing crazy, true. Not, like, not, just, not like, true like, listeners. Like, nothing not crazy. It's like a bar or something. Like, it's not, nothing wild. Not, not true like listeners, uh, just to let you know. That's right. That's don't right. have the endurance for that kind of activity. Um, to be fair, it only takes a millisecond. There you go. I'm not so, getting my nipples pierced, guys. <laughs> re-pierced. He means re-pierced. <laughs> we all have a past power. Nothing to be ashamed of. Oh, thanks, Dan. Um, With that being said, Ash, as our very esteemed guest, we invite you to ask our first question, which we'd like to discuss for 15 minutes of some change. And then Howard, our pierced, uh, our pierced prince, will ask the question, which we'll discuss for 15 minutes again. Then lather, rinse, repeat. I'd like to ask you a question, which we can discuss for 15 minutes of some change. And then we'd like for uh, uh, our listeners to find out about all your good works and the previous works and upcoming works where they can find out what you're doing or the good work that you are doing and probably find out where Howard got his nipples pierced. But that's for later on in the show. <laughs> yeah, there's a separate now, podcast about that. Yeah, absolutely. So now, as you have the floor to ask our first question. Okay, so I've been thinking a lot about how capitalism used to innovate. So all of the things that we enjoy, all the trappings of modernity from the internet to the combustion engine mm. to the birth of Europe's great cities, they were driven by capitalism. And it wasn't always good, very exploitative, lots of very bad child labor, but ultimately capitalism delivered an unprecedented improvement in our standard of living. And these days, well, what have we got? Instead of flying cars and teleporting machines, we get the iPhone 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. We have a planet which is boiling to death in order to feed patterns of consumption which impoverish us, push us closer and further into debt, and essentially uh, enrich only a handful of billionaires. So my question for you is this, is why with capitalism in a state of crisis are we still so attached to it? Mm. Dane, have we ever had a, a better, more, more eloquently posed question on this show? I mean, I want to say no, Howard, but I don't want to piss off every other guest we've ever had on the show. So. <laughs> it, was, it was just a wonderful delivery of that question. Absolutely. And I think, I think it's important, Dane, just before, obviously, I'm, I know you've got a lot, a lot you're going to say here, to just ask you to just explain, Ash, to our listeners who, who may know you a bit about you, but, you know, I've got, heard, heard your biog at the start of the show. Your kind of position on kind of capitalism and kind of communism and and kind of your kind of ta- I remember reading something about your take on communism that you kind of like it but you know there's a lot of 
you would like it but it to be really luxurious or something <laughs> 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 there's one thing you said or yeah yeah I mean ultimately my take is that there shouldn't be any system of politics or the economy which puts profit above human life and right now we've got a system which does put profit above human life we've got all the things that we need to have wonderful lives there's enough food produced on this planet we've got the means to generate endless renewable energy we've got the money in the global north to build healthcare systems across the world and we don't do it and i think that the way in which you get a system where you put human flourishing and happiness at the center of every single economic decision is where all of us the people collectively own the means by which we generate mm. economic value yeah that's a really uh, succinct way of putting it dane what are you thinking uh i'm thinking that the answer is a uh, based on the tenets of capitalism and that by its uh as Ideologically, and I guess mechanically, uh, capitalism is a uh, faith-based system. I think a lot of people do try to uh, perceive it as a an effective form of, uh, or a, a, an effective economic model, when really it has no real factual or scientific basis for it to work. And by that same token, because it is a faith system, I think those who have preferential positions, who are members of the equivalent of the clergy, which we would refer to as the 1% or the industrialists or capitalists, people that are in charge of currency markets and in control of uh, uh, potentially international banking systems and international finance systems and global capitalism uh, see the immediate benefit from it and the privilege that is afforded to them by being the heads of this uh, system. Uh, I think they perceive them as being too great, albeit they are very short term. And I think it's, uh, I think people have kind of painted themselves into a corner whereby um they have no choice but to continue this. I think, uh, you know, in terms of capitalism being about the acquisition of capital gain and uh, exploit via exploitation and having money, I think most people that uh, lead capitalism are more than aware that they can't, they will never live to spend all the money that they have. And by that token, therefore, they have to understand that if it's if they have a commodity which can't really transcend life and can't really provide them with any uh, posthumous advantages or legacy, I think because of that, they need to demonstrate the value of money as an aspiration for people that are still here. I guess a more succinct way to put it is that I think people still hold on to this idea of capitalism, even though there is physical proof that we could work towards the global benefit of humanity, is the fact that some people perceive, because they have been reared within we or their life has been weaned within capitalism, they would see that kind of paradigm as a zero-sum game, where if the rest of the developing world has to gain, for example, I have to lose. Well, and, that, and that's and that's where you get into that. You know, it's kind of two names I'm going to bring up uh, that I'm sure you've kind of uh, thought, thought kind of come across. Uh, Ash, is we had George Monbiot on the show uh, some time ago talking about how economic growth is this kind of illness that is kind of decaying our world. And then and then I'm also going to say the name Andrew Yang, who uh, I don't know how <laughs> you, you look. How do you feel about the idea? He, he's the, we talked about him before on this show. He's the guy that that believes there should be universal basic income, uh, which would mean that, you know, when potentially people don't have any jobs because they've all been made automated, uh, there's this thing that, you know, can 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 solve that problem. Yeah, I mean, Andrew Yang's a really interesting guy because on the one hand, he is an ardent believer in an idea which the more radical, autonomous bits of the left have been pushing for years, which is universal basic income. So rather than having a means-tested benefit system, essentially, you use the ta- you put the tax system into reverse, mm. you put money, conditions-free into everyone's pocket, and the idea is, is that it stimulates growth in the economy People have more spending power, but what it also does is it breaks down the relationship between wages and work. Mm. So it frees people up to do all sorts of creative, entrepreneurial activity, which they wouldn't otherwise do Mm. because they're locked in the drudgery of either relying on a very punitive benefit system or locked in the drudgery of work. And you think about the most creative time periods this country's ever known. It's when we had a decent benefit system. Why did you have 
guitar bands in the 60s? Why did you have punk in the 70s? Why did you have, you know, the emergence of techno? Because you could live a life on the dole and actually make music. And that was kind of the cornerstone of our culture. And now I think where you've got this, you know, kind of abandonment by the state of particularly people from deprived working class backgrounds, you know, the inner cities as well. I think that's why then you have this extreme consumerism going hand in hand with where you see working class arts and working class creative um, work being done. And so that's why I'm interested in Andrew Yang, but he also, I think, doesn't have that sense of, well, how do you then democratize the economy? How do you make sure that all the things that we need to live, so energy, uh, infrastructure, Mm. housing are in public control because he's very much in some ways you know, a traditional American neoliberal. Mm. So why he likes this one very creative idea, um, he's not necessarily fully signed up to, I don't know, something as crazy as universal healthcare yeah. or, um, you know, having... Then he is, and his platitudes are of no use. If you can't mm. create a control level of human uh, welfare, then again, you are not really creating an optimal environment for creative innovation. So it's all 100%. well and good what he's saying, but really don't hold much weight if you don't believe in something like universal healthcare. As basic as universal healthcare. And he's kind of making noises about, oh, you know, does he want to go for mayor of New York? When I was in New York, one of the most shocking things I saw was the levels of homelessness. And it was so racialized. And I looked at the stats afterwards and it was that, you know, um, I think it was 80 percent of New York's unsheltered homeless, i.e. their rough sleepers are people of colour. Mm-hmm. Um, Which is weird that Phoebe, you, Phoebe never met any in Friends, even though she was fucking homeless. Oh, she never, she never, she was, she was the one white homeless yeah, person in New one York. blonde, big old blonde white woman who was homeless and lived in the YMCA and never met any black people. Just the one. Even though the song YMCA is by two black people and a Native American. <laughs> <laughs> no, you've really got to code some effort to have an all-white circle of friends in New York. I mean, mm. um, but like, for me, what was shocking is you saw, for homeless people, you you saw a lot of people who were missing toes, missing toes from frostbite. So that's year on year rough sleeping through the winter. You saw a lot of really severe untreated mental health issues. And that's because there just isn't a social safety net. Mm. There isn't a you know free healthcare system that it, you can just walk in, get your treatment, and that's that. You know, it's so punitive and I kind of thought this is the richest country in the world I'm in the richest city in the richest country in the world and how can its poor live like this and and, and we call this civilization well that's the thing is is, is the word civilization is a key one here because there has been various you know forms of it over you know how many 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 years and, and you think I, I mean, Dane, how many times have I said this is the, an end of an era where we're living through? We might be old and it might still not be over because it could take a long time for this era to end. But Oh, it's, oh, it's over. <laughs> but I think, well, <laughs> we're, we're on the, we're yeah, on the yeah, downward. Yeah. yeah. Based on this, yeah, we're on the downward. Based on this conversation, um, it's, uh, yeah, this, this world, which is built on capitalism, ended in 2008, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. No, no. And that might that might well, yeah, might, might well be proven in the kind of coming decades that it's you know that 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 the crash and everything that came well, after. I think mechanically, it's been proven in the fact that like because people realised throughout lockdown over the last year or so that you don't need to have to go into work and be on the treadmill and be involved in a rat race and still be able to receive a stimulus check. I think it's uh, created a large uh, existential question amongst the collective consciousness in the West of how important it is to be mm. in, a, in an office at five days a week and doing. 40, also, 60 hours a week. The point of that office is money, and that point of that money is your happiness. And 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 those bits, like those <laughs> money and happiness, are they are, they, are, they are diametrically opposed, and that has always been the case. And we've always in taken in this mantra how that like money can't buy happiness. What we've done instead is that we've tried to take happiness and try to examine it, fragment it, recommodify it, repackage it, um, dissect it and get all of these various versions of incarnations or diluted versions of it that are trying to substitute for happiness. The idea of pursuit of uh, capital gain, doing something you don't want to do, I don't think anybody enjoys that, but if you look at most people, you know, and their motivations for doing so, it's normally because of them trying to make somebody else happy or trying to achieve something that doesn't actually involve the exchange of money or commodities. 
But I think for the most part, it's, it, people think they can use that money to transcend stuff. And it's like the lottery. People continue to play it, even though the odds of winning are astronomical because they think it could be you. The thing you said there was so, so interesting. And it reminded me of a, uh, a thinker, a writer, um, an anthropologist called David Graeber, who uh, tragically passed away last year, um, but really, really was just, no one was writing like he was writing. And uh, one of his big ideas was, am I allowed to swear, by the way? Yeah, swear swear away. So his big idea was about bullshit jobs, and he called them bullshit jobs. And he goes, look, 40% of people think that their job, their role, has absolutely no positive impact on the world, that it's entirely pointless. And one of the things he says in a very typically mischievous, graber fashion is when 40% of people are telling you their jobs are bullshit, you should probably believe them. (laughs) And so that's the thing is that, you know, one of the things that everyone predicted in the early 20th century is that technology would advance and therefore we would all have to work less. So John Maynard Keynes, who was kind of the, the big granddaddy of 20th century economics Mm. he was like well look you know by the end of the century everyone's going to be working 15 hour work weeks (laughs) right that's what he thought he's like everyone's going to work two days a week that's it and what david graeber sort of says is that in order to maintain an ordered society where there's not just a capitalist hierarchy but there's a social hierarchy in which everyone knows their place Mm -hmm. and has their purpose and is sort of orderly you have to keep them going to work Mm -hmm. so what capitalism did is that it kind of had to invent bullshit jobs just to keep people as you say in that rat race yep doing things keeping all these ambivalent terms like project manager and account administrator Mm. and and uh, sales administrator and all these other things that have no transferable skills and that if we were to arrive at any real pandemic or apocalypse, how useful would they be in a new world where we have to live, go with the resort back to subsistence living? They wouldn't be at all. I mean, not just that. My mum goes like, so what is your job? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> and, you know and, that's, and that's fine, though, because what are jobs? What do they mean? What are jobs going to mean if we arrive at a point of full automation whereby, you know, where we are on the cusp of cars driving themselves? You know, you can be told how fit you are. You're able to deliver food directly to your door. Like we're already operating within a gig economy, which just we're, we're, we're mm. people providing leisure and hospitality commodities for people. So, what is your job? What does a job even? What will a job even mean? And I, I think I think that's, that's why I think the word producers are really interesting. As a, as a producer, I often think that I could be a conduit for people looking at their life slightly differently. Because I, as Dane knows, I've worked on everything from hard-hitting documentaries to game shows for pets to this podcast. <laughs> and, you know, I look at my life and go, well, well why did I do all these different things? It's Well, because that's kind of what I wanted to do. Uh, I suppose I'm just lucky that I have this medium to uh, manage to get into the industry, you know? And, that's, and be able that's, to the what, that's what the world's coming down to is, as it's, a good, it's a good point, Howard. We're coming down to a world of producers and consumers. And that's what it's going to yeah. come down to in terms of, I think, the next stage of human evolution is are you going to be a producer or a consumer in terms of contributing to this yeah. species as a whole? Yeah. Well, a fascinating question, Ash. You, 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 I mean, I'm not going to say it's the best question we've had, but it's 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 definitely going to be high up the list, I think. Yeah, yeah we in your face, George Monbiot. <laughs> <laughs> what a fight that would be, Dane. Imagine. Yeah, oh, I would. I'm going to be I, like... I don't think George people, fights. Why are people always starting on George <laughs> No, he's, Mon- he's a really lovely I bet, I, bet he, I bet he fights all the time. Yeah, okay. Verbally. Well, <laughs> yeah. yeah, George, George, George <laughs> we're not going to get you on to fight, Ash, don't worry. Um, but um, spe- <laughs> speaking of fights, segue, um, uh, <laughs> I've been thinking about something that's been in the news a lot. And, you know, Ash, I, I really enjoy, you know, reading uh, stuff that you do in Navarra Media. I think it's really interesting. I think it broadens the spectrum of conversation. I wouldn't say every element of it I agree with, but is that that's the case for everything ever. <laughs> and I think, why would anyone agree with everything that anyone ever says? You know, you're not going to... I don't agree with all the output from Good. the foreign well, media either, and I work for yeah, it. There you go. Mm-hmm. But I've, I've been thinking a lot about it. I've talked to Dane about this. You know, I've, I've made this guy, he lived in one-year-old bloke that lives here now with my wife, and, you know, he's a lovely chap. And I, and I just think about the fact that he's got my surname, right? Cohen, C-O-H-E-N. You can't find a more Jewish surname going we were the priests we're the you know everyone knows us and this last few weeks having my son having the israel palestine scenario that's been going on i'm not gonna lie it's made me think a lot about life you know there's a Mm. you know i I occasionally go to work in gold is green uh and you know the idea of me and my son walking to the bagel shop and getting 
anti-Semitic abuse because of what's going on in Israel-Palestine. I'm not going to lie to your listeners, Ash, Dame, that's pretty fucked up in my opinion. So I wanted to ask you, how can we talk about the Israel-Palestine conflict in a cohesive and is there any way of making the conversations positive so that we don't feel as lost in it as we currently do? Big, big, big question. Yeah, Yeah. you know, I think it is possible. And I think that it is in the interests, in the most reactionary, violent, xenophobic parties within this conflict to maintain a delusion that we can't talk about it in a way that puts humanity first. Because obviously, it is absolutely outrageous that Jewish people living in the diaspora are held collectively accountable for the actions of a foreign government. Mm. All right. I don't walk around where I live expecting people to hold me accountable for the actions of the Bangladeshi government, mostly because I don't think they'll know who the prime minister is. <laughs> but generally, <laughs> generally, I don't expect that to be the case. Mm. Um, and I think that the reason why people do hold Jewish people to that standard is because this conflict becomes a pretext to conjure up and revive much older mm. anti-Semitic prejudices and narratives, which in this country, we don't think about how it's come from this country because we were on the right side in World War II. Mm. But actually, it does go very deep, all the way from you know the ways in which it's manifested in left-wing circles where anti-Semitism becomes tied up with anti-capitalism and Jewish people get presented as the embodiment Mm. of an unjust and exploitative system, all the way to the right-wing anti-Semitism where, I'm sorry, but you guys are to blame for me. Um, (laughs) You're the architects of the Great Replacement. Um, You're trying to, you know, outbreed, uh, you know, kind of white Europeans Mm. with, with, you know, imported brownies. Um, Yeah, sorry about that. Um, And I think that, you know, because Jewish people are a people who experience racism and racism which has come up in a cyclical way Mm. for 2,000 years, it doesn't surprise me that contemporary events become a useful piggyback for that hatred. Mm. I think also what is hurt is that the Israeli government and Hamas Mm. both have an interest in saying that the actions of this government are in the interest of all Jewish people everywhere, that they're in the interest of, you know, the Jewish civilians of Israel, that they're in the interest of, you know, Jewish people living in the diaspora. And so that's also a story which gets entrenched deeper and deeper. And what do we lose? One, we lose the basic principle that people, human beings, should be able to live in safety wherever they so choose. Mm. That includes Jewish people living between the boundaries of the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River, Mm. and that Palestinians who have had that right constrained and obliterated since 1948 between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River also have a right Mm. to to living in safety and self-determination. And then you've got to go, okay, so how do we understand the violence without being wishy-washy both sides of them. I think rather than going for what is the big story here, you go, actually, well, what what is it we want? Mm. I think that the right to the self-determination of a people, um, which Jewish citizens of Israel have, is not the same as the right to maintaining an ethno-state at the expense of people who also live there. So you start to have to look at, well, okay, How would you have a state between these bodies of water, no matter what you call it, whether you call it Israel, whether you call it Palestine, whether you call it Atlantis, you know, what what do you need for these people to have equality? Mm. I think the 1967 borders and also the Oslo Accords are now a fiction. I think that it hasn't been a reality for, for decades now. So then you've got to start looking at perhaps a binational state, something where you have Palestinians and Israelis able to exercise their full and democratic civil rights. I think that one of the things that we've got to be honest about is 
well, how have we solved problems like this in the past? Because everyone likes to think of Israel and Palestine as a 2,000-year-old problem. No, it's not. It's like a 75-year problem. You know, the, the you know, Irish uh, problem went on for longer than that. And do you know what fixed it? It was having a power-sharing agreement mm. and it was ending an occupation. Yeah. That's what worked. And so I think that, again, we, we obscure what it is that has worked in the past and what it is that is perfectly obvious, which is you've got to work out a solution which puts the humanity of both parties at equal status mm. and you work from there. But again, it's not in the interests of either, you know, um, ultra-nationalists in Israeli politics or the Islamists of Hamas to say that this is possible. Well, that, that word interest is an interesting one if you think back to our conversation about capitalism, right? Because mm. there is almost no doubt that, that there are, you know, if people were just thinking about the human beings in the situations, if the leaders of either side were just thinking about the human beings, then this probably wouldn't be in the position it's in. And there are major financial, political interests that are dominating the thinking here, clearly leading to many unnecessary deaths, which is absolutely horrendous and heartbreaking to witness. And that's the thing, right? Since when do political leaders do things out of the goodness of their own hearts? They don't. That's why I think that it is incumbent... They, they, they never, they never do, and and part of the reason why is that we have entrusted these people who are at the behest of capitalist or commercial or geopolitical interests mm. to oversee a humanitarian crisis, and never in that same seventy-five year history that we're referring to of post-war growth of ideology have politicians done a motherfucking thing to help out anyone. Mm. Even when it comes down to we were speaking before about the most qualified black man be having to become the president, that's all well and good. But his predecessors, who people re- frequently try to ref- to compare him to, your Martins and your Malcolms and your Medgars and your mm-hmm. and your Marcuses, none of these people associated or affiliated themselves with any part of the bipartisan political spectrum. And I think anytime you try to try and just change the system by being a member of a system, it's never going to work. So one hundred percent. And you know something like again, this is how toxic anti-Semitism is, because everybody talks about you know, the kind of the the power of essentially well, Jewish people mm. in British politics or American politics. That's not the story. The story is actually how it is in America's geopolitical interests mm. to maintain an apartheid state and an occupation in the Middle East, yeah. uh, one which is armed to the mm-hmm. teeth and aligned to the interests of, of NATO, mm. essentially. Yeah. Um, and, also, and also a nuclear power. Exactly. And and the thing is, is that what anti-Semitism does is that it reverses that story and goes, oh, oh, it's all Jewish people's fault. No, 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 no. This is actually, you know, in many parts, many ways, um, a creature of America and Europe. You'll find the people that are most supportive of a Jewish state within the Levant are also the same people who were involved in Operation Paperclip and importing the same Nazis that performed the same experiments on the same Jews into their country to be members of their Central Intelligence Agency. Not me saying it, that's a fact. Not to mention the same nation where the former president referred to Nazis who walked through the streets saying Jews will not replace us as very good people. Well, oh, exactly. That's that's that that's the anti-Semitism of the right. You're you're completely right to make that connection. Yeah. Also, we know what um, cultural Marxism means. That's the new word they use. Uh, <laughs> same as same as same as immigrants. Oh, oh. I do hope you're a Marxist, Howard. I'll be <laughs> genuinely very disappointed. If I don't know not. why I am anymore, and I've said that on this podcast before. I feel lost, and 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 these conversations that we're having about this subject, I hope our listeners will feel a bringing light in a place when if you go online and and just see the darkness of the way this subject is discussed and you know there's there's a lot of i think very dangerous virtual signaling against israel which like just to i've got a number of points that i could make here one i should really make clear up front because i'm a jew and therefore people the Netanyahu regime is an extreme right-wing government and its actions lead to deaths of innocent people and it should be condemned completely by any logical human with a heart still intact right that's like that's just the bottom line of it but then there's so many other layers to the story you kind of obviously people see that and react and i completely understand how they react to that because it's you know the david and goliath story it's like you know people root for for david and 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 
And I can see why people are, are, are kind of condemning Israel, and it's correct that they do so. But at the same but time, are they, but are so they condemning Israel, though? We have to. Well, that's what I mean. There's we, so many layers to it. There's so many is layers. That, because is that, are we using Israel for the collective term for the political body that's overseeing this occupation? Or are we talking mm. about Israel in terms of being the, uh, the, the, uh, the grouping of these citizens who are formed of, you know, uh, both religious and uh, war refugees, as well as like settlers, because you know, I think it's the large part of the reason why it's very hard to arrive at a solution is this constant conflation of ideology, geopolitics, as well as mm. uh, humanity. Um, because while uh, you know Jews are an ethno-social group, there's a lot of intersectionality there. Where you know, I'd go so far as to say, Mithraizi Jews, who are especially from Ethiopia are treated like second-class citizens within the uh, Jewish state of Israel. And, you know, there is a lot of anti-black uh, sentiment amongst Zion, particularly amongst Zionists as well. Uh, mm. And that comes with the intersectionality where, you know, um, obviously there would be the Jew- Jews will be a distinct ethnic social group and, and group within the UK, but also I mean, a lot of members of the Jewish community can also pass for white and will therefore, by that token, hold a very similar capitalist and uh, anti-black platitudes towards even Mithrazi Ethiopian Jews. Uh, as well as sterilization programs that have taken place in Israel to those same groups as well. Uh, and and the uh, beginning of deportation of uh, black Israelites are also being deported from the Jewish state. So I think one of the problems is this, because I think for most people that are completely uh, unaware of the uh, nuance of the conflict, I think most people aren't aware of the fact that, like, as Ash was trying to point out, that there was a fine cohabitation of the area by both Jews, Christians and Muslims way before 1948. I think the thing to bear in mind, and this is the really tricky part, right, is separating out all of these different threads. One is that the state of Israel is formed because of refugees fleeing Europe and fleeing the near extermination of an entire people. The idea of Israel being the place to go and Israel being a state for Jewish people, well, that's a bit older. Um, you've got the emergence of Zionism as opposed to, you know, what was called um, Bundism. And there are actually lots of ideas about where this state could go. Some people are saying, oh, you know, well, maybe it should be in South Well, America. they said Uganda first. Um, Uganda you know, was one of the choices as well. Yeah. yeah and, and that's because, it's you know, the ideology of Zionism is happening at the same time at, as the, the height of, of European imperialism. So all these ideas about how you make a country, right, what it means to create a nation state mm. are, are all going on at the same time. And then after 1948, which Palestinians call the Nakba, which involved the displacement of 700,000 uh, Palestinians. Um, after that, actually where you see lots of support for Israel, it's not coming from the right, Mm. it's coming from the left. Mm. And that's because you had Israel being seen as a left-wing ally, a more uh, socialist-leaning government. You also had the kibbutzes, the communes. Um, So there was actually a a lot of support there from the European left to Israel, which is kind of a a reversal of of what we see now. Mm. And I think that also that history of, you know, Israel is an incredibly young country, Mm. right? It's an incredibly young republic. Um, What that then means is that it's really hard to go, oh, it's Netanyahu, it's Likud, when Israeli politics is born around having to set up this nation state and also there are already people living there. And that, I think, is the complexity that you've then got to go, okay, how do we, I think, balance, right, balance the needs of self-determination of a people, i.e. Jewish people, whether they Mm. are Sephardic or Ashkenazi or Mizrahi Mm. in Israel, and the self-determination and the rights of Palestinians. I think the thing that has to be lost within that is the idea of maintaining ethnostates, whether that's a Palestinian ethnostate or a Jewish ethnostate. Mm. I think that's the thing which you've got to lose. But that's because I don't believe in ethnostates overall. I think the minute you have a state based around trying to maintain the dominance of a racial, ethnic, or religious group in law, I think that that's I'm, a recipe. I'm not down for, for that, whether it's there or whether it's there or any other place. Um, yeah, do you know what uh, I mean? Overall, I think ethnostates bad idea, yeah. bad idea. Yeah. And um, I think this... they lead—they lead to cousin fucking, is what they lead to. 
<laughs> well, I mean that and the British aristocracy, right? Yeah. Um, well, the same, same tomato, tomato. the thing about this conversation and i hope listeners you've taken something from it is that even though we can probably try and dig out some find some things that we're not all going to agree on we have actually been able to converse about it without there being the kind of fucking kind of blathering aggressive trying to get people in, in, into the wrong... Mm. <laughs> oh, you're wrong! You know, which is what constantly goes on about this thing. And I think hopefully it's been a healthy conversation to have. Um, and you know what? There are some really good Israeli sources of information on yeah. this. And I think one of the problems is, is that people think that they're doing Palestinians a favour by turning towards some of the most conspiracist bits of the internet. You're not. There's the human rights group Betzalem, who have also named what's going on in Israel as apartheid. Mm. You know, they're not letting the government off the hook, but they are an Israeli group. Really reliable information comes from them. There's some really phenomenal investigative reporting, which has come from Haaretz, um, an Israeli newspaper. Mm. That's where I get a lot of my information from when I'm trying to learn more yeah. um, about what's going on immediately. And there's a great book, um, which is out now, uh, called uh, 100 Years War on Palestine, which again is a great overarching history. So the thing that I would encourage listeners is if you find yourself in a slanging match on Twitter and you're more confused than you are edified by it, mm. take a step back and read something that's longer than 280 characters. The wisest words anyone's spoken <laughs> in the history of the world. Um, thank you, Ash and Dane. But, uh, you know, really kind of helps my soul thinking about the future of my little boy in this world. And, um, and uh, I've, I, you know, I've kind of hesitated bringing this conversation up on this podcast. But uh, you know what? We need to talk about the, the big things on this show, don't we, Dane? And um, over, really to do. you, over to you for the final question of today's show, mate. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Well, um, that shouldn't be too difficult. It's, uh, it's been, <laughs> I've been helped along very much by everybody. Um, no, genuinely. So um, I'm trying to keep it relatively simple. Uh, as... A libertarian communist political activist, I imagine that you are looking at the state of the left and this country in general right now with some sense of foreboding and dread. Ash, um, I lied. I said there wasn't be much pressure. Ash is a shitload of pressure, yeah? The left wing is pretty much eroded in this country, yeah? I was up. So what, how, do you have a very arbitrary <laughs> libertarian communist manifesto for how we can repair this nation directly? You know what? Right now, I am in the business of diagnosis and not prescriptions because I'm trying to understand how did we end up where we are and what's actually going on. And that's before I get, and this is what we do, this is what should happen. Because a lot of people call me an activist. I'm going to be honest with you, I do absolutely fuck all. I am all talk. And one of the things that I've realized is that the left can't operate on the old understandings of class anymore. Because what's happened in the last 40 years, the things which made people feel like they were part of a working class political force were industrial labor, trade unions and social housing. What's happened to all those three things in the last 40 years? They've been completely decimated. So when you don't have class consciousness being anchored by these three gravitational giants, it means that it's kind of been floating around 
cultural signifiers. So who's working class? It's someone with a northern accent. Who's working class? Oh, it's someone who uh, has reactionary politics. Who's working class? It's got all these things to do with nothing to do with what you own, what you earn, your relationship to capital. And because that relationship between political identity, how people feel about themselves, and what Marx would call the economic base has been corroded, that's where the right have swooped in. Mm. And what they've said is essentially to the majority of working age people in this country, you're not the real working class, right? You're all metropolitan elites. I don't care if you're a delivery rider. <laughs> Fact is, as you live within you know, uh, the M25, so you're a metropolitan elite. And then they turn to people who may live in very economically deprived places, but which have very high rates of home ownership. And they go, you're the real working class. And you know what? You've been forgotten. You've been left behind. Don't ask too many questions about who made this town so yeah, deprived exactly. in the first place. We don't want to answer that. But we're going to We can if you want, though. It's immigrants. Your... Trust me, it's immigrants, though. Yeah, they come here, they come here, they take the jobs, and that's what happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Immigrants closed your factory. Immigrants took away your bus service, you know, all of this stuff. And then it feeds that cultural disconnect between ta- aging towns and young cities, right? Mm. And so then what does the left do with that? Well, there are different theories. One is you try and link everyone together through a big program of economic change that nearly worked in 2017, that fell apart in 2019. You try and have a big get out the non-voter strategy, again, that nearly worked in 2017, did not necessarily work now. For me, what I'm looking at is what are the values and the cultural kind of connections we can form? Yeah, well, it's going to take us back to the beginning, isn't it? Ash, where we were talking about capitalism and, and money not meaning the world to people. You know, people mm. have had this time over the last year or so, and I'm not going to say... I'm, look, I'm, I'm aware of the, the the luckiness of my life, affluent life, you know, that I lead. But I still think, if I'm honest with you, I haven't <laughs> I haven't felt the value of money for the last year or so in any real way. Mm. As in, if you take away paying to where I live, right? You know, like, which is I know is a big thing, obviously. But like in terms of what you actually spend your resource, you know, what are you what are your resources? What do you need? Well, I need some food. Uh, and that was this is the big existential question that was asked of the West because it's not a coincidence mm. that the biggest capitalist powers within the West being America and the UK and also by the merit or, or the uh, the extent of white supremacy in Brazil were po- most afflicted by COVID is because the people who are in charge of industry and control capitalist interests there weren't able to exploit the proletariat so they kept saying to people go to work eat out to help out go to work a little bit go to work with a mask on because they realise that these are the only ways through the infrastructure they've built, capitalism they've built, these are the only ways we can exploit people. If people stay at home with their families, then we're not able to exploit them in the same way and realise our money from them. So, yeah, that's probably when you, you, when you say you realise how I don't really need money that much because I've been at home with my family, I think a lot of people have arrived at that same conclusion and are wondering yeah. you know, about their purpose as a result of that. Well, the, the purpose so, is, 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 you know, we. I, I think... You know, I've always got a really interesting. Uh, well, maybe not that interesting. <laughs> I've got a, re- a very, a very particular point uh, about money, which is like. So I've had until you know, uh, I now have this child, and so I, I have my nephews and nieces. Uh, you know, they're they're, they're not as important. <laughs> but, you know, I have these six nephews and nieces, and and you know, they grew up, and I, they're all teenagers now, pretty much. And I, you know, what do you buy your nephews and nieces for their birthday, right? It, you, it's just this absolute cave of just bollocks that you can buy them like just <laughs> nonsensical rubbish that i can buy them and you know what when the oldest ones turned five so i had five years of buying crap and then the oldest ones turned five and so that's been another 12 let's say another 12 years since then i've never bought any of them anything all i've ever done is taken them out somewhere cinema Namco, by the way, Namco mm. still exists in case anyone wants to know. And <laughs> you can still go nice. and play arcade arcade games there. Um, occasionally, when um, go karting or whatever it was, you know. And I know those things cost money, but the experience—I cannot describe to you yeah. the value of the experience and the bond that I have with those guys off the back of not just going. Well, here's the money for those trainers. You know, I don't care what you do. <laughs> you know, or just buying them some crap. You know, and, and I think that to me, that's always stuck with me as I've as I've been growing up. And it's that's kind of the wild thing, right? Which is now you look at people 
who are, you know, kind of aged 40 and below, right? Home ownership has collapsed amongst that generation. You've also got very stagnant wages, right? So if you look at the charts from, you know, 1979 to now, house prices, i.e. asset prices and wages have just gone Mm -hmm. like that, right? In just two completely different directions. So what that means is that if you're on that person on the low wage and your cost of living has gone up, but so has the arena of consumerism, you're just in more and more debt to buy more and more trappings of a wealthy life. But actually, you don't have that asset that's appreciating in value. You are essentially locked out of the economy. And the only way in which you participate in it is to have money extracted out of you. And I think no wonder you've got such high rates of depression and anxiety in this society. You know, you're just sort of surrounded by things that you're told are going to make you feel more happy, fulfilled, and secure. And actually, everything around you is making you the opposite. Exactly, and you can't buy any of it, but that's what they'll keep trying to find new ways of trying to tell you this will lead to happiness. And I think that is a big existential uh, kind of crisis we're all feeling, is that after all these years of having all of this stuff at our fingertips and having access to this, and even being able to see this aspiration, and even to give the illusion that we are achieving Mm -hmm. these aspirations via social media, we are not happy and i think we've known we've been not been happy for a long time is that like of course beautiful things are lovely do you know what i mean like beautiful luxurious things but when people ask me so what's your definition of luxury i always think about what is the thing which either embodies or encapsulates time so there's something gorgeous and you can see how much time was put into making this thing and it might be my mum's chocolate and rum bread and butter. <laughs> I was pudding, about to say which, food wins like, every time for me. Which like is just this labour of love or her biryani, right? It's luxurious mm. because it's buttery and it's got the ghee and it's got the sweet little fried onions oh. on it, but it takes time and there's love in it. Or when you see, you know, I saw this um amazing exhibition at the VNA and uh someone had made a vanity table and all the little hairbrushes and stuff out of lacquered hair. So it used the Chinese process of lacquering with real human hair and it made this absolutely stunning art piece. And I think it's this stuff. It's beautiful, but there's time locked within it. And human human ingenuity as well that's involved in that. And I I think that's, there's, and I think part of our transcendence into becoming capitalist and consumerist is confusing marveling at the feats of human ingenuity and then mm. perceiving them as commodities. So example like jewellery, for example, wasn't just about the idea that it just cost a lot of money. The idea of jewellery was that like a, the metallurgy and like almost alchemy is involved in taking these same old mm. elements and minerals and transferring that into something beautiful. And like even people forget the reason why gold is preferred is not just because of this, this weird uh, exoteric value we place on it. It's because it's as a metal, as a precious metal, it is malleable. And it is unreactive and it's able to last mm. and we can use it to sculpt and chronicle our existence as human beings. That's why gold is important. Not just because it looks nice and it's shiny. It's because if you cast something in gold, it can last throughout the ages and it can be used more than once. And it can, you can leave an indication or some kind of way of indicating that we were here before. But even prior to that, we can always kind of have an idea of, you know, the works that were done by our predecessors. But so far as the, you know, this, the emotional and psychological disposition of them, their connections with their families, like you said, that's something that you can't really put a price on. The same with my mom's biryani. It's not so much that it's like use lots of expensive ingredients. Ingenuity has been placed into that. And, that, and the, concept, the, uh, the quantum of that begins with a mother's maternal love wanting to provide substance mm. to her family. And that is really the motivation. It's also her wanting to show off at Eve because she knows she makes, she brings out that biryani and she knows she's going to get this like tsunami of compliments. Well, and you can I see want it. some. And I really, I, I really heard about it. I want I'm some. Really I'm really pumped about it, actually. Right I'm really now. pumped about it. You had <laughs> me at the, uh, the fried onion, so I think the one, to, you know, oh, the one word that didn't come up, the one word that didn't come up in some of that dialogue that you guys were just having is, is, is value. That's a really interesting mm. word that, that we may not have time to dive fully into today. But that, that word value and how we became obsessed with getting it and at mm. any Oscar, cost, Oscar at any Wilde. cost. That's what he says, Oscar Wilde says, doesn't he? That we know the cost of things and we don't know the value of them. 
Oh, yeah, it's perfect. And also, I mean, you know, Oscar Wilde, um, you know, you know the price of everything, but the value of nothing. Mm. But Marx talks about different kinds of value. So he talks about the use value mm. of something. And the use value of something is largely fixed. It's like, what is the value of this thing's use? And of course, that's context driven. In some uh, settings, a fork is more valuable than others. Fork is very valuable when you're eating spaghetti. It is not so valuable when you're, I don't know, trying to build a house. Um, you know, so that's context driven. So it's not good for soup. Not good for soup, <laughs> unless it's a really thick soup. Sometimes you can and you can get yeah, the little yeah, fruit on bits. Actually, I want you to buy some more spoons. I'm going to take to live your life, but you should I, maybe buy some more spoons. I'm incredibly cheap. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, I want you to buy some spoons. Not sporks, Ash. <laughs> actual spoons okay soup spoons. i just i just like i like i like spearing food so, so i kind of think soup is a counter-revolutionary food um but you've got also exchange value and exchange value is is the value of markets mm. and it's socially mediated you know you also have this process of, of abstraction right marx very famously says um you know the the value of 20 jackets is not the same as 20 yards of linen mm. so the value yeah of the jacket is more expensive because what it embodies is essentially the dead labor of the person who made it. And then there's value in the market is again, this abstraction. It's, um, uh, it's not a fixed property of the thing in itself. It's a social relation. Mm. And I think that, you know, that's why sometimes I think these things can feel almost so ghostly like you get you buy the thing and you hold the thing and the joy of it evaporates that's why they say it's that's like why they say new new it. and improved because but it, you know that's one yeah. of the biggest paradoxes of our whole consumption our consumerist uh market is that we say things are new and improved it can't be Hang both on, i'm so sorry my friend my friend is just at my window can you give me one <laughs> second yeah, yeah. bro i'm doing a podcast can i no 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 wait to go, 10 minutes 10 minutes <laughs> 10 those are two hands Come back in 10. <laughs> hey, Ash. Moved on to the next That's road cool. to me. So what's, what's, just the constantly Ash, what, like... what's the sign for podcast again? <laughs> <laughs> uh, what was it? That's what I'm going to say. I don't know why. I was like, oh, what the fuck? <laughs> 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 I'm yelling at him. I think we're going to keep, I'm going to keep this in today, you know, with this bombshell at the end of the episode. Yeah, we want, no, we want to do that. Well, you know why? Because Ash took the time out from performing something professional to take time to connect with a friend. It's yeah. much more important. Yeah. We get yeah. it. I get yeah, it. You know what? Um, I feel, I feel like. I feel like Biryani. That's how I feel. Moist person in the world when it comes to my friends. Because now everyone says this about their friends. Yeah, of course. That their friends are like the best and the smartest and the funniest and the kindest. But, but mine actually are. So sorry to your friends. I'm sure it's great. Whatever. <laughs> well, oh, I, I, barely, I barely have any friends apart from Howard. Yeah. And so, you know. Um, <laughs> Mine are like the SEAL Team Six of friends, nice. um, but but with less less extrajudicial killing. Yeah, I hope. And burials at sea. Yeah. Oh well, I don't know. I don't know what they get up to when I'm not around. Um, True. So um, it's been it's been a particularly good episode, isn't it, Dane? You enjoyed yourself. I think it's been a real winner, isn't it? I have thoroughly. You can't see my face, but I absolutely love this, Ash, and I really appreciate you coming on. I found all of the answers to be very eloquent and enlightening. And thank you so much for helping me correct a lot of my malapropisms because I say words incorrectly, like Mizrahi and, mis- and also misquoted Os- Oscar Wilde. So thank you for that. Uh, you know what? Um, I live in fear of saying words wrong that I've only ever read. And I've got one colleague at work called James Butler. And whenever I'm giving a lecture and I've got to pronounce somebody's name, like, you know, Henri Lefebvre or something, I'm like, it's just like, bro, can you please tell me how to students. Yeah, no, so he literally voice notes me like correct pronunciations. So I... I have the same disease as you. It just so happens that the right words came up today. That's cool. Well, I, you were there when I needed you, and that's the most important thing. Uh, <laughs> so um, where else can uh, we can find out about your good works, and where can our listeners find out about your writings and speakings and, and thinkings? So if you want to uh, get the half-formed, half-baked thoughts, you can follow me on Twitter at IOCesar. If you like the more thoughtful and carefully produced works, you could go to Navarra Media, um, where you also get the really wonderful work of my colleagues as well. We do audio, we do video, we do articles, we do live streams, and maybe we'll start doing live events again mm. uh, as we come out of the pandemic. Very good. That'd be nice. Oh, I like that. We'll be there for that. Uh, I'm f- following you right now. Um, 
if if you and if you want to see if you want to hear some reckless shit, but you know, done through the veil of comedy, then check out my Twitter too. Uh, before it gets before it, before it is unceremoniously banned. So <laughs> before before you're like I. Um, taking a break, taking a break from social media. Out of my own mouth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I am um, every tweet. I can just feel my income going. Yeah, but right. I'm not gonna be. You're not gonna be. You're never gonna be famous forever. But you'll be a human forever. So you know, as long as I can live myself at the end of it, that's all that matters. You sound like Judge Judy. It's just like <laughs> beauty fades, dumb as forever. She's right. She's right. <laughs> she is right. <laughs> Scarily enough. Thank you so much, Ash. It's been a real joy, and I hope our listeners enjoyed this one. I think it's been a really good episode. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, and for anyone wondering, the Greek god I would want to be is Hermes. Mm. Oh, I was thinking the messenger. God of delivery. The messenger. Yeah. Yeah, I can just chuck packages uh, over the bin. Um, (laughs) That would be my godly power. You've been listening to Dane Baptiste Questions Everything, hosted by Dane Baptiste. For more from Dane, go to danebaptiste.co.uk or follow him on Twitter at DaneBapTweets or Instagram at DaneSnapTeast. Our guest was Ash Sakar. You can follow Ash on Twitter and Instagram at AOCaesar. The show is produced by me, Howard Cohen. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at the Howard Cohen. The show is mixed and mastered by Audio Culture. You can follow Audio Culture on Instagram at WeAreAudioCulture. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at DBQE Podcast. Thanks to Polly, Gelly, and the ACAST team for all their support. Thanks for listening, guys. And remember, question everything. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.